Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though, and though they found in him no guilt worthy, worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem, to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, with them urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to, to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, good morning, church. What a, what a great report. I'm so excited to see these new church plants. You know, for those of you who are new or just as a reminder, we are in the middle of a 10-year vision where we are calling 50 by our 50th, where one aspect of this vision is we want to see God use us to help plant 50 churches by our 50th anniversary. So in 10 years, we're seeking to help plant 50 churches with uh, uh, four to five of those churches being in our own backyard. And we are, are well on our way uh, for that goal. By the time we get that, I don't know, I guess we'll be closing in maybe on close to 100 or so since uh, 2010. And uh, just thank you, every one of you who participates and you sacrificially give to Faith Promise so that we can... Uh, so that we can do this work of God around the world. And as we're celebrating that, I also want to celebrate the fact that uh, we have one of our young ladies who has finally, finally made it to Japan. Laura Fisher, 
uh, tried to go two years ago. For two years, she's been trying to get there on a short-term missions trip, and COVID shut it down. And she has tried and tried and been waiting and waiting. And uh, finally, I got there, I think, this past week. And uh, in fact, I think she now has an extension, so she can stay a little bit longer than originally intended. And she's uh, we are so happy for Laura. And again, thank you, all of you who have supported her and you support Faith Promise, which allows us as a church to help get her there. And then uh, another area that's kind of missions to celebrate is uh, uh, we have a, a group of teenagers and some chaperones, I think about a dozen, 12, 13 people who are now meeting and preparing for this summer. They'll be taking a short-term missions trip uh, to uh, Manchester, England, and we'll be there for, I don't know, a week or two, something like that, and working alongside our church planning partner there and the movement that is there that we're working with and uh, doing work and Vacation Bible, I guess, different work. We're really excited that our young, we're finally able to get our young people and some of our adults back uh, to help do this type of work, which God, we see God use in the lives of our people and, and with our partners. And then just good timing for us to kind of be celebrating this and God's work in our church and through our church and the kingdom around the world as we get to partner with these different brothers and sisters in different countries uh, who we love and just, uh, just we're just so glad that we get to have relationships with because as we come to chapter 13, what we see here, I believe, is accurately described as maybe the first short-term global missions trip in the entire Bible, right? This is, a, this is a big chapter. In our annual theme here of transitions, and as we've talked about transitions in the book of Acts, chapter 13 is a pivotal one. From here on out in the book of Acts, which has pretty much emphasized the apostle Peter, uh, we don't really see Peter too much from the rest of the book. One more time, he's mentioned briefly in Acts chapter 15, but the rest of the book is all about Saul, uh, whose conversion was recorded in chapter 9, we looked at, right? And <clears throat> Saul, whose name is going to be changed to Paul, and, and the fact that happens, we, we catch that here in chapter 13. And, and so this chapter is a big one when it comes to this idea of missions and, and carrying the gospel to those who need it and need to hear it. And so this morning, since we're, we've been kind of having this celebration and getting to see what God is doing in our own church and this vital aspect of our church, we're going to jump into this passage and, and glean some, some good reminders that help us as we think about how God uses us and how we want to spread the gospel, how we want to do missions and send people out and raise up churches, and how we as individuals want to share our faith. And so there's a few truths and gospel applications we'll focus on this morning. Let's start right away, jumping in at verse one, and seeing that in this passage, we're reminded that healthy churches are sending churches. Healthy churches are sending churches. In verse one, <clears throat> we're introduced to this church at Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, we have skipped some uh, passages in our study of the book of Acts. 
And in some of those passages, uh, there has been a few verses planted. Luke has been preparing us, I think, for this passage. And, and so what we would have seen if we had read those passages and, and I had brought messages on them is after the persecution of Stephen, I mentioned how people were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Well, one of those passages says that people, Christians, went up to Antioch, Syrian Antioch. You can see it kind of up there. Uh, I used to have a laser. Uh, anyway, I won't mess with it. But you can see it up there in the top right-hand corner there, the little green dot. Up in the top part of Damascus, Christians went up there. They, they fled the persecution. They settled. They began to share their faith. More and more believed. And pretty soon, word got back to Jerusalem that there were quite a few Christians. And so they sent Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who encourages you know, Saul when Saul comes to Jerusalem to introduce himself to the apostles, they send Barnabas up there to check things out. And Barnabas stays. He begins to preach and disciple and more and more come to Christ. And before you know it, there's so many Christians needing to be discipled, he needs help. And so he goes across the water to Tarsus. You can see that up there at the very top of the screen because that's where Saul is, right? Remember the end of chapter nine, Saul's in Jerusalem and the, the Jews are now after him. And so the, the apostles sneak him out of town and they send him home to Tarsus. It, this has been like, you know, 10, 12 years have passed now. And he's been up there and he's been teaching and preaching in that portion of the world. And so Barnabas goes and gets his friend Saul and he brings him to Antioch. And, and here we see this church has now formed in this region. And what a great church. It's a, it's a cosmopolitan city. It's like a, a crossroads of the Roman Empire where trade is conducted and the nations travel back and forth. And the cosmopolitan nature of this city is reflected in the leadership of this church. Here you have a, a Levite priest, Barnabas. <clears throat> you have a couple of black Africans who are part of the leadership. You have Simon of Cyrene, Simon Niger, right? Uh, Simon of Cyrene is the man who carried the cross for Jesus. And he had a couple of sons, Rufus and Alexander. And you'll see Paul greet them in the book of Romans. And befriend, he befriends them and he says, greet Rufus and his mother who is dear to me, right? So Simon is one of the leaders of this church. And then there's another black African there. And then there's an aristocrat from uh, the home of Herod. So you got to believe he was one of the historian, Luke, the historian's sources of what was going on at the time of Herod and everything that was occurring in the household of Herod, right? Because he was an inside man who knew. I mean, what an incredible leadership team. And then you have this Jewish rabbi, Saul, and they're all there, right? And, and so, so what you've seen is this group, the church is growing. Barnabas and, and Saul have made the trip to Jerusalem and they took an offering because of a famine that was going to take place. They're there when Peter gets arrested and they're, they're all, they see all this taking place. After the, the release, they come back to Antioch and they bring with them Barnabas's cousin, a guy by the name of John Mark. John is, Mark is the son of Mary, whose home is where the disciples were gathered praying for Peter's release. We're all caught up with chapter 12 last week. Remember that? Where they're all praying? That was John Mark's house. Barnabas and Paul bring him back to Antioch, and here we are. Well, more important than their cultural identity was their identity as Christians. 
This is the first place that believers are called Christians. Antioch was kind of known for this. It was kind of, they, they loved puns, they loved labeling, and the people of Antioch, the citizens named followers of the way, believers in Jesus, Christians. And it was definitely a deserved title. Why? Because what you see in this church, the Antioch church, is that they are a sending church. Let's remember, church, that to accept Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to accept the call to follow Jesus is to accept the call to be sent by him into the world to proclaim the gospel. Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. This is a and statement. Every Christian is by nature, de facto, to be sent into the world. So healthy churches are sending churches because its members understand they are sent into the world on mission by the one who was sent into our world on the greatest mission ever conceived in the history of the universe, right? John, the, the apostle, at the beginning of his gospel, says in John chapter 3, verse 17, that God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And at the end of his gospel, we read where Jesus says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so the local church in Antioch, it grew and it began to impact their city because these spirit-filled Christians understood and accepted that the call on every Christian's life is to be a sent ambassador for Jesus Christ. Every Christian has this call to be a sent one, to be a missionary. I mean, technically, just to be accurate so we all know, the word missionary is not in the Bible. Sent ones, this is a biblical concept. Ambassadors for Christ, it's a biblical concept. And it applies to every single one of us. It will look differently in all of our lives. Some of us will go across oceans, but all of us are sent ones into the world to proclaim the gospel. And so this group of Christians understood this. And so their family members, their friends, their fellow citizens, they are evangelized, they are discipled, and their church grows and it thrives. But healthy churches are sending churches and they actively send out the gospel and you'll see it happens in concentric circles, right? We, we talk about this in our church. It's part of the vision of our church. It's one of those values that we have it starts in your local area, but then like ripples in a pond, it expands out. And this is what happens here. It started in Antioch, but then it spreads outward from here. And ultimately, these sent ones obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they send out two of their very best people so that healthy churches could be planted in areas of the world that needed churches. And then those churches, in turn, do the same. But as our second application shows us in verses 4 to 14, even when the Holy Spirit is leading, things don't always go as you plan. Things don't always go smoothly. 
It's not uncommon for there to be opposition and be discouragement and setbacks and even failures. And you see this beginning in verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews and they had John to assist them. All right, so let's, let's capture here, right? This first, first short-term missions trip, it starts out great. You notice that the Holy Spirit is clearly in charge, right? He's leading them. The Holy Spirit's in charge. And you have at the A-team. You've got Barnabas and Paul leading this team. Phenomenal. And they even have an assistant, uh, an up-and-coming young leader, John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. A smart man, an educated man, a, 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 a good, strong young man. And they're going to Cyprus. I mean, well, just to, to put this in comparison about Cyprus, which is just you know, right across the water there. I, I don't have my map, but it's like that little island that's just bloop, and you're there, right? Um, Jacob came to me about a, uh, about a short-term mission trip to me and Jonathan. Uh, to put it into comparison, if he had come to us and said, hey guys, I, I want us to do a short-term missions trip, take some youth and some of our chaperones, and I've been praying about it, and I really think the Holy Spirit wants us to go this year. Um, yeah, it's clear as a bell. We're going to the Bahamas. Yeah, the Bahamas is it. Uh, sure, man, there's a whole lot worse places to go do a short-term mission trip, right? That's Cyprus. That, that was Cyprus in the ancient world. I mean, it's Cyprus today. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a destination place. It's a vacation place. It was 2,000 years ago. Wonderful place to go. People went there for that, even for that purpose back then. And so they went to a great place, great team, led by the Holy Spirit, but very soon, this team began to experience a common saying that we have around here at Covenant. Ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. Right, building committee? <laughs> Ministry is messy. <laughs> you have your plans and then, man, they just go out the window and things you got to adapt and adjust and redo and redo and man, what is going on? And I mean, that just, it's just part of how it goes. It rarely goes as you initially think it's going to go and envision. And that's certainly what happens here. And there's several examples of it in verses 4 through 14. You see spiritual opposition in this passage. As you read the passage, they, they begin to go from the east side of the island to the west side, and they're preaching in all the synagogues. And what's interesting is you don't really read that they have much spiritual fruit. Uh, you, you do read that they have spiritual opposition. In fact, as you get into verses 7, 8, 9, and get to the west end of the passage, they bump into a guy by the name of Elymas, or Jesus, the, uh, just a false Jewish prophet, a false prophet. Or Elymas the magician, a magi. He, he had the ear of the proconsul whose name was Sergius Paulus or Paul. 
And, and he had this man under his sway. And so when Paul and Barnabas come and they preach the gospel, the proconsul is intrigued by their message. He's described as an intelligent man. In other words, he was, he was looking for truth, but this false prophet had such strong influence in his life, he was blocking the message. And so you have this intense scene of really spiritual warfare going on until finally Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, calls this guy out. He calls him a wicked servant, an evil servant of the devil. And he pronounces God's judgment upon him and says, you will be blind because you are blinding this man. You will now be blind and not be able to see for many days hence. What an irony here. Do you see that? Here's this guy, Paul the apostle, who at his conversion is blinded, right? And he comes into conflict with a man who he then blinds because that guy is blocking another Paul from hearing the gospel. I mean, you can't make this up, right? And this intense spiritual warfare going on. At the end of the book, the opposition is so strong in Antioch, Pisidia, they, they do the figurative shake the dust off their feet and they move on to the next town because of the opposition from the Jewish men and women in the synagogue. And then you have team discouragement and desertion. Verse 13, and John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Something happens here. You know, scholars debate this and it's always good for, you know, talk around, you know, beverage at late at night between pastors and this type of stuff we like to discuss, right? What happened? Well, I think this, I think that. Later it gets, the more certain we become. But we literally nobody knows, right? Uh, so, you know, a popular idea is that, that uh, John Mark got jealous, got angry, because up until this time, it's Barnabas and Paul. But now, from this point on, it's Paul and Barnabas, the, 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 the role, the superiority apparently flips. And as the, the first cousin, he doesn't like it. That's one theory. It's possible. We, we aren't told. More, more likely, I kind of think he just got really discouraged, dejected. But, but it's, it, it, this is a pivotal moment in the relationship of Paul and Barnabas because on their next missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark again and kind of restore him to ministry. And Paul says, absolutely not. And this great partnership breaks up over disagreement in John Mark. I think more likely what happens here is, a, is another example of how things just, I mean, man, talking about opposition and discouragement and, and how your plans just don't work out and how you have these setbacks was physical sickness. See, at verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. This is in Cyprus. They come to Perga. In other words, they left the island. They go a little north. Now they're in the southern portion of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, right? And, and they come to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Okay, what's happening here? The question is, why don't they stop in Perga and preach? I mean, this is a major city, and they don't stop. They, they instead make a very hard journey uh, uh, across very tall mountains. They change elevation from flat land up 3,500 feet or more. And, and, and it's a difficult trip into Galatia. And, and I was, what happens is Paul got extremely sick, very sick. And we know this from the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter four. 
Uh, the, the area where they land is a marshy area. Now, historians tell us that that area was known for a particular strain of malaria, a very strong strain. And the Romans, the Gentile people, they were, they were scared of it. It would kill you, and if you got it, you could have it for life. And it would bring about severe seizures, paroxysms. It, would, it, could, it could cripple you, it could break bones. The, the seizures could be so bad. Uh, it, would, it would give you such blinding, debilitating headaches. It, one historian described them as uh, taking a hot iron bar and thrusting it through your forehead. Your eyes would bulge out and, and it, would do, it could do damage. And so this is what apparently happened to Paul. And he refers to this in Galatians chapter four. And he commends the Galatians because he said, I was a, I was a mess. I was a sight. I was, I, was the type, I was so bad that most people pushed me away, but, but you weren't scared away from me. You actually took me in and you ministered and you helped me. And, and then I preached the gospel to you, whereas most people rejected me. So apparently, and this makes some sense, you know, all of that going on and John Mark, it seems like maybe he got discouraged and he left over what's happened here because things are not going well. They go, through, they go through Cyprus. There's not a record of there being much fruit. They get, you know, in spiritual warfare with this uh, Elemis guy, you know. And, and you now Paul gets sick and he's, and he's apparently violently sick. And they have to change their itinerary. And, you know, John Mark goes home. So I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm out of here. You know, we've, we've experienced that. Our own mission endeavors have faced similar opposition and setbacks. Sometimes it's very minor and it makes for great stories later. I remember the very, you know, we talked about the churches that we started planting. The first church that we planted in our under faith promise was a church in Nepal. And, and we went to the dedication service of that church, Bob Jensen and myself and Mark Dean. And never will forget, we went there and we didn't know where it was, but where it was was in the backside of nowhere in the middle of the Himalayan mountains or, or whatever. And, and within sight of Mount Everest, right? There it is. And we drove forever, set, you know, up, I mean, all around, you know, thousands of feet up, no guardrails. And a guy who did not know that cars come with a brake and... Uh, Wow, what a trip. And to top it all off, we get there and we dedicate the church and they bring us out back after the service and they had a hut where the women were in there and they had butchered something. <clears throat> and they prepared a meal and they laid it all out before us and they stepped back and we're the guests of honor and we're supposed to eat. To this day, I do not know how Bob Jensen so graciously extricated himself from eating that mystery meat. But he didn't eat it. He, he persevered and he didn't do it. Mark Diener and I did not have that sense of panache. And so we dug right in and boy, did we ever pay the price for that, you know? Mark didn't even make it down the mountain before he was tossing his cookies. And uh, part of it was because of the way the guy drank. And some of it, you know, it's, it happens and, you know, and we laugh about it. And, you know, a week later when I was finally back to normal, you know, we can look back and we say, okay. Other times it's sadder. You know, we were reviewing the church plants this week and we recognized that, you know, uh, one of our church plants that we announced a couple of years ago in Monterey, it, it shut down, it failed. 
And we had such high hopes for this church plant. It was in a great area with great church planner right by the university, but it got started with COVID and you know they tried to maintain. And when they finally could open back up again and they, they, they gathered together their very first service, virtually everybody in the church at the first service got COVID. And they, they just, that was it, done, tap out, church shut down. And how discouraging for that church planner and our partners there in the ministry. You know, we're gonna experience failures and setbacks and confusion and pain and anxiety. We're gonna see our plans blow up. Our plans that we think they're, they're gonna change, they're gonna fail at times. And you know, this could create doubt in our minds. Are we doing what's right? This is common. This is, should be expected. This happened to Paul and Barnabas. And that's why it's important and it's imperative that we surround our endeavors in prayer. And we, we have this certainty that we are being led by the Holy Spirit. I think of Dan Iverson who goes to Japan and he doesn't see one person come to Christ for the, I think for the first five or six years that he's there. Not one person. How important is it that you know that you're being led by the Holy Spirit, submitting everything in prayer and being led by the Holy Spirit gives you the courage to persevere through the setbacks and through the discouragement and through the difficulties. It gives you the humility to fall on your face before God and say, okay, Lord, guide us, show us how we're supposed to adjust. We just want to be your servants. We want to walk with you. We want to be your servants. Show us where to go. So being at that posture gives you that courage to push through. Those setbacks are going to occur even when you're led by the Holy Spirit. Third application, the unifying focus of all missions work is the proclamation of the gospel to those who need Jesus. For those of you who are new here, you hear us talking about missions and planting churches. We, we absolutely are in favor of going into communities and helping those communities with, with food and medical needs and, and mercy needs and, 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 and taking care of the physical needs of people. But we believe that the best long-term plan to address physical needs of people in any kind of community is to plant a church in that community who does that kind of ministry for years and years and years to come. The best approach is to do that within the local citizens, not a team of Americans that parachute in for a, a quick effort and then leave. Both are good, but the second one has long-term benefit as it is the local church, God's plan A, bringing that level of relief. And with that, they also bring the proclamation of the gospel, which is the solution to the greatest need that any person in that town or village or country has, much more than whatever physical need they have is that spiritual need. So that's why we, why we emphasize what we emphasize. And what you see in this passage in verses 14 to 40 is Luke records Paul's message to these Jews in this synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. This is his only sermon to the Jews 
that Luke records. He records for us a sermon to the Gentiles in Athens. This one is to the Jews. And like Peter's sermon at Pentecost, like Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin before he's about to get executed, uh, Paul, what he does is he connects the dots of the Old Testament law and the prophets, which all of those Jewish men and women who followed Judaism in the synagogue, they would have been aware of. He connects those dots to the good news of Jesus. And the, the details of this sermon, they're important. He starts in verse 17 and shows them that God relates to all of us by his grace and not because of our works. He says in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. We know from the scriptures and what God himself says, he did not choose to help the Israelites because they were the most numerous people or the greatest people. He chose them out of his sovereign grace. That's how how God relates to all of us, not because we deserve it. He relates to us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, and he does it through his grace. And as Paul begins to lay this out before the people, he walks them through their history and he gives them example after example of him relating to their ancestors through grace. And then he points out David. In verse 22 and 23, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to do their king. David, that great king that the Jews all looked to and were looking forward to seeing his ancestor come, the Messiah, and establish that eternal kingdom that had been promised by God. And what Paul does is he shows them that God fulfilled that promise to David by sending Jesus to be our savior He raised up David to be their king of whom he testified. I found David, the son of Jesus, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That Messiah who they were looking for. And then as he's preaching this sermon, Paul pivots And he addresses what has to be a concern to every one of those men and women who were listening to them. But Jesus died. And he points out to them that God's plan all along required that Jesus die for their sins, that he had to live that life that they were to live and die in their place and then be resurrected to show the victory over sin and death and that this was God's plan all along, and they should have known that. In fact, the people that were in Jerusalem who shouted crucify him should have known it. The Sanhedrin should have known it. Why, Paul says? Because they read it every single week in the synagogues. As during their Sabbath observations, they would open up the scriptures and they would read the passages. And Paul says, and all of these passages show them exactly what was supposed to happen. And they missed it. They missed it. They heard the words, but they didn't understand the words. A malady that continues all the way down to our day to day. How many sit in churches across America, and they hear the words, but they don't understand them. They don't understand what's being said. 
And so they missed it. And they crucified their Lord. And then he says, but Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead and we saw him in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And he continues to lay before them examples from the Old Testament that this was God's plan all along that he would send his Messiah to save his people from their sins. And now the question is, will they believe? Will they believe and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? And he gives them this wonderful statement showing them that God promises to forgive and save anyone who will trust in Jesus. In verse 38, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. On that day, there were many who heard the good news that Paul proclaimed and they were eternally changed. They came into the family of God. And I'm sure the same is true this morning. Many of you here, you have heard this message before and you believe, and just that little simple reminder of what you have believed, it sings to your soul, reminds you of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But for those of you who have not yet believed, the warning that God gives in Paul's sermon in verse 41 is one for you today. In verse 41, he says to those people, and he says to us today, for everyone who's not believed, if you do not turn from your sins, if you do not embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, one day you will die in your sins and you will perish for all of eternity. So receive Jesus, believe in him, trust in him, Commit your life to him as Lord and Savior. If you've not done so, do so. What a tragedy to hear the words, maybe Sunday after Sunday, and not understand how important it is to commit your life to Christ. But if that is your desire to do so, the good news is that the day can be your day of salvation. If your desire is to commit your life to Christ and have your sins forgiven, by all means, close of the service, come see our Stephen ministers over here in the care area. They have been trained. They can take the scriptures. They can show you and they can pray with you. And today, like some of those 2,000 years ago when they heard Paul's sermon, today can be your day of salvation. Don't wait. Why wait? Why wait? Why wait? Well, there's a final application, church, this morning from this first short-term trip. And it's our takeaway truth this morning, and it's one that we'll close out on. Fruitful churches and Christians on mission work with God, not for God. Let's read that together. Ready? Here we go. Fruitful churches and Christians on mission work with God, not for God. God makes an incredible statement in verse 41. He says, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you to it, tells it to you. 
to, to those Jews and men and women in that synagogue who would not believe. So a week goes by, right? And, and they, they gather back together. They ask Paul and Barnabas, come back next week, preach to us again. We wanna hear more. They come back the next week and, and not only are the original people there, the entire city has heard about it. So, so now you have the, the city's turning out. It's like a big campaign. Everyone is chaos. And as Paul and Barnabas begin to preach, the people are responding and this stirs up jealousy and the hearts of the religious leaders of the synagogue and the more orthodox Jewish men, Jewish men and women in that synagogue. And they begin to shout back and they begin to say, this isn't true. And they begin to resist the message of the gospel. And so Paul gives this very stern warning from the God, the word of God from the Psalms. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. But in that statement is something important for us to catch this morning. God is aggressively at work in our lives, in our community, and in our world. He's working everywhere, and we see it. It's God who has initiated this entire redemptive plan by his grace. It's God who reaches out to us in his sovereign grace. It's God who sent his son to earth to die in our place. It's God who sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of our need of salvation. It's God who through the spirit gives us this new heart that can believe. It's God who calls us to Christ and gives us faith. It's God who opens our eyes. It's God who opens prison doors so that apostles can be freed. It's God who opens lions' mouths so prophets, or closes lions' mouths so prophets are saved. It's God who tears down iron curtains so that men and women and missionaries can go in the nations and spread the gospel that had been closed to the gospel for 70 and 80 and 90 years. It's God who's at work in our world, even when missiles and bullets are flying, it's God. God is at work. This is stated in verse 41. It's illustrated in the whole rest of the chapter. And so as these men and women, they resist, whereas the rest of the city is hearing them and they grow jealous, Paul turns to these men who are resisting and he says in verse 47, the Lord has commanded us, I made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, what an incredible verse. Paul's saying God is at work and he is telling us he's at work in the Gentiles. We are gonna get in line with God. We will work with the Gentiles and his work will be 100% successful. Church, how comforting is it to know that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are led by the Holy Spirit, every time we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is at work and it will be ultimately be 100% successful. 100% successful. Now notice this passage doesn't say that everyone who was there hearing Paul preach the gospel believed. It doesn't say that. And, and everyone is not going to believe when you share your testimony 
or you seek to, to build a bridge and form a relationship and a friendship and, and one day you, you go a step further and you seek to introduce them to your cause, the cause for the hope that you have. In, not everyone is going to receive that. Some are gonna slap it down. Some are gonna listen and still not believe, but some will believe. And it says here, not everybody is, does believe, but everyone who God has appointed to eternal life believes. Everyone who God has appointed to eternal life believes. God is 100% successful. You mark that down. You take it to the bank. And when you share your faith and you proclaim the gospel and you're led by the Holy Spirit to talk to this person and you're urged to plant that seed, God is at work in that person's life and that person has been called by God, you mark it down, there's coming a day where that seed will be watered and it will flourish and there will be a harvest to eternal life in that person's soul. You may not see it, you may even be dead by the time it happens. It may happen at your funeral for all you know but God will be 100% successful. Everyone who he is appointed to eternal life will believe. And God is at work. So when we share our faith, when we church plant, when we take a short-term missions trip, we don't want to come at it from the perspective of, hey, this is what we are doing for God. We don't share our faith because we wanna do this for Jesus. We don't go plant churches because we are serving our God and we wanna do this for God. We wanna do it with God. Do you see the difference? This difference is really important. That little preposition is important, okay? We can do a lot of stuff for God that has, does not have the leading and the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that's called spiritual activity. And it ends up expending a lot of energy and not having any fruit. We wanna work with God because God is at work in our world, in our community, in our lives, in our families. Where is he at work? Let's work with God. Right? This is what they're doing. Let's do it with God because that's what he's doing. And that's what's gonna be fruitful. This is why we must be led by the Holy Spirit. Why we must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And so the vital question really in all of this passage, as we think about this idea of working with God and how these brothers were led by the Holy Spirit, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, they see the fruit that comes about because of this. The question for us, the most important application for us is how do we become sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit? How do we ensure that we're in step with the Holy Spirit? Isn't that kind of an important question? It is. And I'd suggest to you the answer is actually in the chapter. We've already read it. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Isn't that interesting? Worship and prayer, and the things associated with worship and prayer like fasting, put us in tune with the Holy Spirit, and service and evangelism and church planning and mission, these things are not to be divorced from each other. They're to be married at the hip. We're we're to keep these things in balance. Out of our worship and prayer and our walking with God, our missions and evangelism and service is to flow. If you overemphasize the worship and prayer and everything at the expense of mission and evangelism, what you end up with is a form of legalistic, spiritually arrogant, proud worship. Insider perspective and your perspective is all about you and how awesome and important it is for us to worship God at the expense of mission. But if you emphasize mission and evangelism and serving God without the importance of worship and prayer, then it's fruitless. And you're worshiping for God, not with God. And it becomes empty religious activity. It's both and joined at the hip. May God help us to to keep that balance in place. Lord Jesus, thank you. For the example we see in this early church, sending in love with their Savior, working with you, even when they face opposition and discouragement, they persevere. They see that fruit. Lord Jesus, would you help us as a church to keep that tension in balance? Lord, may we we bathe everything we do in our church and prayer. Lord, I thank you for the prayer that takes place in our small groups, that takes place here on campus on Sunday mornings as Christians gather together and pray, that takes place in our church service. Lord, may the prayer life of our church deepen and may we more and more see you through your Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us. We thank you where we have seen this take place. We thank you for the fruit that we see. As a result, Lord, we would like to see more. Lord, we wanna see that for our church, but Lord, we wanna see that in our individual lives. Would you use us to win our family and friends, our neighbors? Would you help us to embrace that as followers of Christ, we are fishers of men. Give us eyes that can see those who you have eternally called, that you have ordained to believe, and give us the opportunity to plant seeds, water, and see a harvest. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.